Hello, and welcome back to the Teach for the Heart podcast. I'm your host, Linda Cardamus, and I'm here to give you the ideas and inspiration you need to overcome your teaching challenges and make a lasting difference in your students' hearts and lives. This season, we're talking about common teaching challenges that you are probably facing every day in your classroom, from dealing with parents to feeling discouraged to managing homework and everything in between. These next two weeks, we're going to be talking about a topic that I've been asked about many times and that there's a lot of confusion about, and that is um, what um, what place does religion and faith have in the public schools? And in particular, as a Christian teacher, what should I be doing? What am I allowed to do? And um, what can that look like? in a public school. And what we're going to do is we're going to break this up into two separate weeks. And we're going to look at the topic from two different sides. Next week, I'm going to be talking with Finn Larson from Christian Educators Association International. And he has a lot of experience with what is legal. What are you as a Christian teacher, or really any teacher, legally allowed to talk about? What are you not allowed to talk about um, in your public school? And so that is going, I'm, I already have that interview. It's all ready to go. And you guys are going to love it. So much practical advice. But I realized that before we get to that interview, before we actually talk about what you are allowed to do, And by the way, you might be surprised at how much you actually are allowed to talk about God and religion. But before we get there, we kind of have to deal with a philosophical question. And that is the question, not what is allowed, not is religion allowed, but should religion be allowed in the public school? In other words, is it right to talk about religion to students or is that somehow wrong to do? And you see, any time that I um, talk about religion or faith in the same um, topic, in the same post as public schools, um, I get a lot of comments and I get a lot of teachers that are so thankful for the thoughts, but I get, I get a lot of pushback too, as you can imagine. And I get comments like these, one from Abe and one from Kaylee. Um, here's a few examples. Abe says, in no way should you ever be permitted to teach about your religion in schools in any aspect or manner Ever. Your religion is a personal choice and has nothing to do with education. Uh, Kaylee says, Please do not push religion onto students at a public school. Your goal should not be to show them Christ. Your goal should be a good educator without any religious bias. And there's so many more comments I could read to you, and some are nicer than others. I mean, Abe's, I didn't read this part, but he also compared, um, quote, scary Christian zealots to the Nazis and Charles Manson in part of his quote. But anyhow, regardless, their point is the same. A lot of people argue that they would, they're not, they're not just arguing that religion isn't allowed in the schools, which by the way, they're mistaken about that, but they're, they're saying that it's wrong, like it's morally wrong to include it. Now, we could notice how interesting it is that they're making a moral statement about religion, but regardless, we'll move past that. Um, that's what we want to talk about today. We want to talk about that. Is Are they right? Is there something wrong to bringing religion, bringing the topic of God up in the classroom? Because um, as I said, next week, we're going to get into the nitty gritty of what is legal and what is not. And you might be surprised how much religion actually is allowed in the public school classroom. But before we can get to that, we have to answer this very real question. 
not about what is allowed, but whether religion should be allowed. In other words, is it right, moral, or ethical for you as a Christian teacher to bring the topics of religion or God into the classroom? Now, listen, I don't expect unbelievers to um, necessarily understand this. Some do. Some completely get it. But I understand there's always going to be a certain percentage of unbelievers that are going to answer that question with an emphatic, no, it is not right. But my biggest concern is that often well-meaning Christian teachers, and maybe you're one of them, kind of get drawn into believing this same this same thing, believing that, you know, God has no place in public life and that I have to keep God completely out of what I do in my public school job. And many others, and maybe this is you, maybe you're not sure about it, but you're at best, you're you're kind of confused. You're like, I know how powerful my faith is, but I I, I don't think I can talk about it. like you're just very confused. Like I don't know if that's right. What about separation of church and state? And and you're just confused. And so um, typically, if you're struggling with this, you have there's two big concerns and you're that you're focusing on, or or one of these. The first is what about the restriction of separation of church and state? And two, the idea that aren't public schools supposed to be neutral? And so we're going to dive into both of these once again. We're not talking this week about what is legally allowed. We're talking about the moral question of, is it right? Should it be allowed? So in other words, let's say that the laws change tomorrow and you could say anything you wanted. Should you be allowed? Should is Would it be right for you to? That's the question we're trying to answer today. And it matters because when we talk next week and give you specific examples of things that you are allowed to do, and also things you're not, but when we tell you you're allowed to do this, this, and this, you need to know, okay, not only am I allowed to do that, but it's good and right that I do that. So we've got to debunk these two objections. And so let's dive into them and kind of pick them apart here. So the first objection is that the first is about the First Amendment and separation of church and state. And it basically goes like this. The First Amendment guarantees separation of church and state. Therefore, religion in the public schools is simply unconstitutional. Now, here's the thing. This is just, it's just false <laughs> for so many reasons. Oh, I know that's blunt, but those who argue this way simply don't really know their history um, or at least they have a distorted version of history, or they don't understand what the First Amendment says. So there's a couple reasons why this argument doesn't hold water. Okay, first of all, the First Amendment says nothing about keeping religion out of the government. In fact, it guarantees the free exercise of religion. Let, let me quote the First Amendment for you, which, by the way, this is a wonderful thing to have your students memorize if, if you have teach history at all. It's quick, and it's an important amendment we should all know. It says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech, or of the press, or of the right of the people peaceably to assemble, and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. So as you can see, the First Amendment says nothing about separating church and state. Instead, it tells Congress that it cannot pass any laws that prohibit religious freedom in any way. In other words, it 100% guarantees religious freedom. Okay, but what about where it says Congress cannot respect an establishment of religion? That's where it's saying church and state have to be separate, right? 
Well, that's how it's interpreted today, but that is not how it was originally intended. This phrase originally meant, and they wrote it to mean, that the U.S. government is not allowed to establish an official state religion or to favor one denomination over the other. All right, let's step back in history for a minute. Remember that when America was being formed, they were coming out of England. And England had an official state church. It was the Anglican Church or the Church of England. Furthermore, quite a few colonies had established their own official denomination before they became states. So the concept of an official religion was well known. And since Christianity was widely believed in practice by a majority of the population at the time when our nation was being founded, there were many people that were hoping that the government actually would indeed establish a Christianity as the official religion of the country. But here's the thing. As you can imagine, each denomination thought that their particular brand of Christianity should be the official religion, right? You can imagine every single denomination, we should be the official religion. But if the government were to have preferred each of those establishment respected any of those particular establishments that actually would have infringed on the religious liberties of everybody else. If they would have picked any one of those to be the official religion, everyone else would have lost some of their religious liberty. So our founding fathers foresaw this problem. And because they believed religious freedom to be an inalienable right, in other words, a right given by God, which the government cannot take away because it doesn't have the right to take it away. So because they believe this, they guaranteed not only that the government wouldn't prohibit the free exercise of religion, but also that they would not play favorites with any particular established religion. And that's exactly what they meant when they said Congress will not make a law that respects an established religion or respects the establishment of a religion. So, so you might be asking, okay, but today I hear separation of church and state ad nauseum, and, I, and, and so where did this come from? I'm glad you asked. The phrase separation of church and state first appeared in a letter written by Thomas Jefferson in which he was assuring the Danbury Baptist that the government would never interfere with the free exercise of religion. Um, I'm going to link to an article in the show notes at teachfortheheart.com slash objections. And um, it's going to explain the whole situation. But I'm going to give a few highlights here from that article. So here's the idea. The Danbury Baptists were a group of Baptists that originally wrote to Thomas Jefferson congratulating him on his new presidency, but expressing some concerns. They were concerned that because the First Amendment promised protection for the free exercise of religion, this kind of implied that religious freedom was given by the government. So in other words, if the government was promising to protect it, then it was that kind of implies that the government is giving this freedom, which thus implies the government could one day choose to take it away, as opposed to what they believed, and this is what the founders believed too, that God has given us the free exercise of religion. It's a right given by God, and thus the government cannot take it away. And these, these, this group was worried that one day the government might try to regulate religious expressions, which the, clearly their concerns were founded because that's where we find ourselves today. Here's what they said. I'm going to quote a bit of their letter. Our sentiments are uniformly on the side of religious liberty, that religion is at all times and places a matter between God and individuals, 
that no man ought to suffer in name, persons, or effects on account of his religious opinions, and that the legitimate power of civil government extends no further than to punish the man who works ill to his neighbor. But, sir, our constitution of government is not specific. Therefore, what religious privileges we enjoy, as a minor part of the state, we enjoy as favors granted, and not as inalienable rights. So Thomas Jefferson reading this, he understood and actually shared this concern. And he spoke often about how the government should not and may not interfere with the free exercise of religion. And he even talked about, um, he even made clear that, that there was a prevailing concern in his day about there being an established official religion. And that was the need for the establishment clause. He talks about it in a statement that he makes to Benjamin Rush, another founder Uh, another sign or rather of the Declaration of Independence. I'm not going to read the whole thing here for sake of time, but you can find it in the post at teachfortheheart.com slash objections. But he's basically talking about, um, just reading in part, like every sect, he says, believes its own form of religion, the true one. Everyone perhaps hopes for his own to be established, but especially the Episcopalians and Congregationalists. So he was realizing that this was a problem and that he intended to oppose it. So when Jefferson wrote back to the Danbury Baptist, he used strong language to assure them that the federal government would never interfere with or limit their religious freedom. Remember, they're writing to him concerned that since it seems the government um, is, you know, giving us this religious freedom, are they going to try to take it away at some point? So he says this, believing with you that religion is a matter which lies solely between man and his God, that he owes account to none other for his faith or worship, that the legislative powers of government reach actions only and not opinions. I contemplate with sovereign reverence that act of the whole American people, which declared that their legislator should make make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, thus building a wall of separation between church and state. As you can see from the context, it's very clear that he and the other founders were never meaning to keep the church out of government. Instead, they were intending to keep the government out of the church. And that brings us to my second reason that this argument doesn't hold water, and that's the founding fathers clearly intended that religion, and Christianity in particular, be openly taught in the public school system, and used throughout public life and even in the government. So I don't know if you realize this, but our early leaders not only relied heavily on the Bible for the writing of the Constitution, there are more quotes from the Bible in the Constitution than any other work, but they also integrated the Bible into almost every aspect of the government and the public sphere. I could give you so many examples, but even just a quick tour of Washington, D.C. will reveal scriptures engraved on almost every building and prominently displayed throughout the Capitol. And this wasn't just a formality, something they did to look good. The founders believed that religion, and the Bible in particular, was absolutely necessary for a free society to function. They had no qualms about reading the Bible, talking about it, discussing it, and even using it to impact public policy. Furthermore, they prayed extensively. They even held church services in the Capitol building. Can it really be a surprise then that they believed that religion was an important part of a public school education and that the Bible must be taught in public schools? In fact, they believe the public schools must focus on three areas, religion, 
morality, and knowledge. And that if religion were removed, morality would tumble as well. And that without religion and morality, knowledge alone would be dangerous. This might sound crazy to you, considering all that we hear today about what should and shouldn't be in the public school. But let's listen to a few quotes directly from the founders about this important question. Benjamin Rush, one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, says this, The only foundation for a useful education in a republic is to be laid in religion. Without this, there can be no virtue. And without virtue, there can be no liberty. And liberty is the object and life of all Republican governments. He also said, The only way or the only means of establishing and perpetuating our Republican forms of government is the universal education of our youth in the principles of Christianity by means of the Bible. For this divine book, above all others, favors that equality among mankind, that respect for just laws, and the sober and frugal virtues, virtues which constitute the stole of the Republican of republicanism. And he's not talking about republicanism there as Democrat and Republican. He means the republic. In other words, American or democratic form of government. Fisher a- Adams, he's the one that actually wrote the First Amendment. He framed it, says this. Our liberty depends on our education, our laws, and habits. It is founded on morals and religion, whose authority reigns in the heart, and on the influence all these produce on public opinion, before that opinion governs rulers. And finally, I have one more from Daniel Webster, an early lawyer and senator. He said, If we in our posterity reject religious instruction and authority— violate the rules of eternal justice, trifle with the injunctions of morality, and recklessly destroy the political constitution which which holds us together. No man can tell how sudden a catastrophe may overwhelm us that shall bury all our glory in profound obscurity. I have way more examples. I link, rather, to an article with way more examples, once again, at teachfortheheart.com slash objections. But clearly, you can tell from just these even few examples of, this is just a few of so many quotes, that the founders intended um, religion to be key as the curriculum of the public schools and to be a key part of education. So clearly, if they intended that, then they did not write the First Amendment to keep it out. As I said, Fisher Adams was the framer of the First Amendment, and he talks about how our education is founded in morals and religion. So religion in the public school is not prohibited by the First Amendment. It was never considered unconstitutional until the 1960s, when the Supreme Court declared it to be so. And actually, contrary to popular belief, they didn't actually declare all religion to be unconstitutional, only the establishment of religion. But as I said, we'll get into that next week. For right now, we're discussing what is not allowed, but what is morally, ethically, and historically right. And I hope that you will see, the reason I've gone through all this history, is that you will see that there is no need no viable grounds to object to religion in the public schools because of the Constitution. Um, And I hope that we as Christian teachers will be careful what language we use about this in the future. Never find yourself saying, 
the first, um, you know, we can't talk about religion in the public schools because of the First Amendment or because of the um, separation of church and state. That lends credence to the fact that this is somehow wrong. Instead, use language that is correct and accurately display, dis, um, show, um, accurately portrays what really happened. Um, I say something like, you cannot... Um, you can't preach the gospel in the classroom because um, the courts have interpreted the First Amendment in this way. And that's really what happened. The, the courts interpreted the First Amendment as meaning something that it wasn't originally intended to. And so, um, as we'll talk next week, there are laws of the land, but they're based on an interpretation of the First Amendment. They're based on what the, de- or another thing I like to say is the courts have declared this unconstitutional, but I never say this is unconstitutional because at its core, it is not. It has been declared so by the courts, but it never was when you look at the original constitution. Okay, off my soapbox. Objection number one we just talked about, um, separation of church and state. Objection two is the concept that public schools are supposed to be neutral. So whenever I talk about being a testimony for Christ in the public school system, I inevitably get pushback about how public schools are supposed to be neutral. And this pushback obviously comes from non-Christians, but it comes from Christians as well. And maybe you're struggling with this. Now, we could spend time arguing Um, based in part on what we just discussed up to this point, that maybe uh, public schools actually shouldn't be neutral. But for sake of time, we're not even going to go there. For now, let's just assume that it would be great if public schools were neutral. So let's accept that premise for now and just look at it. Okay, so here's the question. If public schools are supposed to be neutral, is it truly neutral to completely ban any reference to religion? People think it is, but it's not. That is not neutral. Stick with me for a minute. In schools, we teach students academics, yes, but we also try to teach students how to be good learners, good citizens, and eventually good employees or good business owners or good parents and good bosses, right? It's not just about the academics. We want to teach them to be kind, fair, honest, ethical and understanding, right? That character education is a big focus of what we're doing. But if God and religion are not allowed into the picture, then what we're saying is that we can teach students to be good without God. That is the premise, basically, of the public schools. We can teach students how to be good citizens, good people without. We don't need God for that. We don't need God to be moral We don't need God to have a fulfilled life. But here's the thing. That, my friend, is the very definition of secular humanism. Look it up. The definition of secular humanism is the belief that humanity is capable of morality and self-fulfillment without belief in God. So the premise of the public schools by removing religion completely is, by definition, secular humanism. Because here's the thing, you can't just remove God out and say now everything's neutral. When you remove God out, you're now making a new value statement. You're now saying we don't need God to do these things. And that right there is its own worldview or way of seeing things, its own way of interpreting human difficulties. It's its own philosophy. It's its own belief system or religion even, if you will. So if 
And here's the thing. If you play out these secular humanistic beliefs to their natural conclusion, you will see how their philosophies go way beyond neutral. And this isn't like something they're trying to keep a secret. I went to the um, website. I just Googled secular humanism and I came to secularhumanism.org, which is a website maintained by the Council for Secular Humanism. So directly from secular humanists, this is what they say about secular humanism. There's three statements and they're going to sound very familiar to you if you teach in a public school. Here's the first one. Secular humanism is a life stance, a body of principles suitable for orienting a complete human life. As a secular life stance, secular humanism incorporates the enlightenment principle of individualism, which celebrates emancipating or freeing the individual from traditional controls by family, church, and state, increasingly empowering each of us to set the terms of his or her own life. (laughs) Do you see how that's a belief system? They're not, they're not, they're not trying to hide it. It's a belief system. Here's the second thing they say. Secular humanism is philosophically naturalist. It holds that nature, the world of everyday physical experience, is all there is, and that reliable knowledge is best obtained when we query nature using the scientific method. Naturalism asserts that supernatural entities like God do not exist and warns us that knowledge gained without appeal to the natural world and without impartial review by multiple observers is unreliable. In other words, something that you believe, something that happens by faith is unreliable. Um, That is a belief. That is an assertion of a philosophy. Um, And finally, they say, secular humanists hold that ethics is consequential to be judged by results. This is in contrast to so-called command ethics, in which right and wrong are defined in advance and attributed to divine authority. No God will save us, declared Humanist Manifesto 2. We must save ourselves. Secular humanists seek to develop and improve their ethical principles by examining the results they yield in the lives of real men and women. In other words, what they're saying is that we don't believe that morality and ethics comes from a divine source. And so we believe that what is right um, just depends on how things work out. So if things work out well, it's right. If, the, if, if this practice makes things turn out poorly, it's wrong. So in other words, we get to decide what's right and wrong. And if you've been teaching in the public school for not, I'm betting you that these philosophies sound really familiar because they are integrated into the public schools and because they have to be. If you take God out, this is all that's left. And there, here's the question. Is that neutral? It is most certainly not neutral. That is not what... That, that is not a neutral belief. Secular does not mean neutral. And so if, if you, if we, this public school system is steeped in secular humanism. It is ingrained in the curriculum, the culture, the language, and it's simply not neutral. It's just not. So, so what am I saying? My point is that if we could truly, if it were possible to just take out the topic of God and religion, and what was left would be true neutrality, then maybe that would be an idea worth considering or debating. I would still debate it, but 
but there'd be some merit to that. But that's simply not what's happening because that's simply impossible. You can't just, God, and we know this as Christians, God is God. He created this world. You can't simply take him out of the picture and have something that works without him, um, without developing your own belief system that replaces him. You have to replace him with something. And so that's not what's happening. We don't have neutrality in the public schools right now. We just don't. Instead, students are being indoctrinated into a secular humanistic worldview. They are being taught a belief system. And if this mockery of neutrality were not enough to make matters worse, we as Christians know that the belief system they're being taught is 100% untrue. So I'm tired of being told that Christian teachers need to check their faith at the door and be neutral because the system is certainly not neutral. And if we as Christian teachers buy into this argument and we try to be neutral, what we're really doing, if we're not careful, in other words, if we, I'm not, once again, I'm not saying to preach, okay, you can't do that. But I'm saying if we try to be neutral, if we try to take God out of every single thing and just and not let any of his principles affect anything, if we try to just be neutral, do everything like everyone else, what we are really doing is embracing and furthering the cause of secular humanism. We're participating in the indoctrination, helping to shove an untrue and dangerous belief system down our students' throats. And honestly, our unbelieving colleagues kind of can't help this, but we should know better. So it's simply impossible to truly be neutral. So maybe, just maybe, we should stop trying. So (laughs) where does this all leave us? Am I saying you should get up in your classroom and start preaching that students need to get saved in Jesus' name? Absolutely not. Well, at least not unless you're looking for a creative way to quit. Um, But... (laughs) We just, what we needed to do, the point of this whole podcast episode was that we needed to clear away these arguments, these objections, so that next week when we talk about what is legally allowed in the classroom, that you're not worried, that you don't have these lingering doubts in the back of your mind, that by bringing up religion, you're somehow a scary Christian zealot like Nazis and Manson, because you absolutely, most certainly are not. Let's pause and pray. Lord, thank you so much for these Christian teachers and just for their, I I know they have just a desire to serve you and to serve their students in the public school. And I pray that if they've been confused about some of these objections, that you will just um, bring these truths to their mind, that they'll seek out the truth and continue to research them until they until they um, just feel that peace. And I pray that you'll um, bring them back next week as we're going to talk about what is allowed in their classroom and that that will be just such an encouragement and a help to them. And I just pray that Christian school teachers in public schools across the nation um, would not be afraid of bringing you into the classroom in the ways that they're legally allowed to do so and that they will be able to, that you will use them, their lives, their influence to just make an incredible difference in their students' hearts and their students' lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Once again, thank you for being here. We went a little bit longer than usual, um, but I really, once again, I hope you will be back next week. This was all the theory. Next week, we get into the nitty gritty and we really um, get to talk about when religion is allowed, when religion is not, is not allowed, what you can do, what you can't do. And I think um, 
if you come there with um, kind of an expectant mind that you're really going to walk away with some great ideas for ways that you can bring up God in the classroom in a way that is right, that is legal, um, and that will be good for your students and, um, and for you too. So I really look forward to seeing you there. In the meantime, um, if you know other teachers who are struggling with these questions, I hope you will share um, this article with them. It's at teachfortheheart.com slash objections, or you can share this podcast episode with them too. And I really look forward to that. Um, Thank you again so much for being here. And if you're not part of Teach for the Heart, I hope that you will join us. You can just go to teachfortheheart.com slash mission, um, or I'll link to it too at teachfortheheart.com slash objections, which is our main page for this um, show. But if you go there, um, you'll be able to join Teach for the Heart. And basically, um, all that means is that you'll be part of our community of teachers. You'll be invited to join our Facebook group if you want to. And each Monday, you'll receive an email from me with some ideas, inspiration, encouragement, um, all from a biblical worldview. And we'll just kind of continue to discuss this with you. And then that also means that if you're listening to this live next week, when the new um, post comes, the new podcast and new post comes out with an interview about exactly what is allowed and how you can share your faith in a public school classroom, that you'll be the first to know about it and you'll get that um, update via email. So once again, teachfortheheart.com slash mission or teachfortheheart.com slash objections. And we'll look forward um, to seeing you there. In the meantime, keep growing, keep striving. You really are making a difference. Bye.